Father, uh, I thank you that you've given us this opportunity once again to uh, return to the study of this uh, first epistle of the Apostle Peter. And I thank you that you've brought us through this study now to conclude it with uh, what you would have us to learn from this fifth chapter. Father, I pray that you would uh, have given me uh, sufficient study and that you will guide me as I speak and teach today that uh, everything that you would have us to learn from this passage will be uh, faithfully communicated here and that we would receive it uh, with gladness and joy and that it would uh, equip us as we go into worship in the next hour and as we uh, continue in our Christian walks for the rest of our lives. Father, be with us today as we have this day set apart to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 5, the whole chapter. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, Because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Alright. So we've come now to what as I said, will be the last uh, lesson in this series. Uh, And I have wondered if I should try to split this uh, fifth chapter into two lessons. But since I am going to be out of town the next two Sundays, I figured it'd be best to go ahead and close today. Um, In this final chapter of the epistle, Peter finishes out with some more exhortations. First, to the elders of the churches, and then to us who are subject to the elders. And then finally to the church in general. And this, of course, is something that we should be thinking a lot about as a church, since we do believe in the plurality of elders while currently having only one elder. And we are hoping to find another qualified man to add as an elder to our church. And so these passages which deal with the subject of the office of elder and of our relationship to an elder um, are things that we ought to have in mind as we uh, seek to identify someone who is 
uh, qualified for that office. So again, he starts here with a charge to the elders. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of, crown of glory. So Peter says he's exhorting these uh, elders of the churches in Asia Minor as a fellow elder. Uh, Peter, of course, was one of the apostles of Jesus. He mentions also here that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which was one of the uh, necessary characteristics of an apostle, according to uh, Acts one twenty one and 22. But here he's addressing the elders of the church as his equals. He's not commanding them as if he's someone who's chief over them, even though as an apostle he did have that authority. Uh, and so by him doing this, by, by calling himself a fellow elder, I think it's reasonable to say that Peter did not claim to have a, a governing authority over the local churches where he was not an elder and that he was instead affirming the independence of the local church. Now, as an apostle, he had authority over, over all the churches and over the elders, but the office of elder is a, a successor office of the office of apostle, and it carries on the apostolic ministry and work. Um, the elder's responsibility is to continue to proclaim that message that was first preached to them by the apostles. And we see in the first century the apostles devoting the remainder of their lives to preparing the elders of the churches to carry on the ministry once the apostles are gone. And so this apostolic ministry that's continuing in the office of an elder, while it is primarily to be carried out in the local church, it does concern the universal church. And so even though local churches are independently governed, they should cooperate and assist one another. Um, so just like the apostles in the New Testament writing letters to uh, correct and exhort and encourage the other churches, if an elder in one church is concerned about things that they see or that they hear about going on in another church, it's good for them to reach out and offer wisdom and guidance. It's also good for elders of different churches to make a practice of taking counsel together and meet together for encouragement. Um, and we see examples of this in some of the post-apostolic epistles like uh, the first epistle of Clement, who was an elder at the church in Rome who wrote to the church in Corinth um, in order to deal with a situation that had arisen there. And so Peter, by writing as a fellow elder to other elders, is um, giving us, I think, an example of how all the elders of the churches should view one another as, as peers who, who need to be working together. Um, and then he also says he's exhorting them as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now that is a description of every Christian. Um, and what I think we can take from this is that this spirit of encouragement and exhortation for one another and for the elders of the churches uh, Especially that, that, that this spirit of encouragement should characterize all of us. 
And so we should be encouraging our elders to continue in all of the things that Peter is exhorting them to do. Um, And also we should be uh, encouraging other believers, even who are in other churches that we know, um, because all of us ultimately have the the same end and the same goal. Um, And of course, the best way for us to encourage our elders is by doing what Peter tells us to do down in verse 5 that we'll come to in a few minutes. So the charge then that he gives to the elders is shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And we commonly refer to our elders as pastors. And pastor is an old word for a shepherd, uh, someone who cares for a flock of sheep. And the language of shepherd and sheep is common in the Bible in reference to Christ's relationship with his people. Uh, We all know Psalm 23, verse 1. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd in John 10. And then Luke 15, uh, when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees to explain what he's doing, eating with sinners and tax collectors, he uses the analogy of a shepherd seeking lost sheep. And so here Peter uh, calls the elders of the church shepherds. And in verse 4, Jesus is called the chief shepherd, and so the elders are sometimes called under-shepherds, under-shepherds of Christ. They're the ones who have the responsibility to care for the flock of Christ until he returns to ultimately consummate his kingdom. He says the elders are to exercise their oversight not under compulsion, but willingly. Um, now, some commentators, it seems, take this to mean that they're not to compel the people that they're leading, but to encourage them to follow willingly. And Peter does address that in verse 3, but I don't think that's what he's addressing here in verse 2. I think instead what he's saying here in verse 2, when he says not under compulsion, but willingly, is that... Um, He's saying don't serve the church as an elder because you think you have to, but because you actually want to do that ministry. Um, So the church should not compel someone to uh, enter into the pastoral ministry if that person doesn't actually have a desire to hold that office. Um, Also, don't seek to uh, enter vocational ministry because you are in a tight spot and need the income or because even because the church needs someone to enter that office and no one else will do it. Don't, don't enter the office reluctantly without actually having a desire to um, hold that office. Um, he adds here, as God would have you or literally according to God. Um, now, depending on your translation, you may not have this. It it is missing in most of the later manuscripts, but I do think it is authentic. It is God's will and design that elders should serve the church in their office out of a genuine desire to do so. If you look at 1 Timothy 3.1, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, overseer is another term for the office of elder. Remember earlier in verse 2, it says that exercising oversight is the responsibility of the elders. 
And so a man who will be an elder in the church needs to have an aspiration um, or a desire to serve in that office. And this is something that people think kind of uh, shy away uh, from speaking in this, in this kind of way today. Uh, people always use the language like, I feel called to the pastoral ministry. And that's absolutely true. But it's like people use that in a way as to say, it's not that I want to be an elder. It's that I feel like God wants me to be one. And yes, pastoral ministry is a calling that God gives. But he gives that calling by stirring up in a man a desire to be an elder. And so it's perfectly biblical for such a called man to say, I want to be an elder in the church. Now, it does need to be for the right reasons that a man who is going to be an elder needs to meet the qualifications that are laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. And he must genuinely desire to exercise the ministerial gifts that God has given him. It says, uh, uh, eagerly is the term that is used. Um, And then it also says he must not offer, he must not desire the office for shameful gain. Um, Of course, throughout the history of the church, there have been many people who have sought Uh, to use the position of pastor or other church office for shameful gain. Of course, we know the uh, Roman papacy and a lot of its clergy in history have become extremely wealthy by telling people, you know, we're the only way into heaven and, you know, give us money. Um, Selling them kind of a bill of goods or selling selling heaven to them. Today also we see a lot of these megachurch pastors on TV who have gigantic houses and multiple of them and private jets and all this kind of stuff, which they got not by preaching the gospel and by actually shepherding the flock of Christ, but by promising that they would get some kind of blessings if people send them money. And even in smaller churches, we can see there are plenty of examples of pastors exploiting members for wrongful gain. And we do, as a church, have an obligation to sustain our pastors so that they can devote their week to doing works of ministry and to praying and studying the word. But a pastor who is pursuing riches through that office is not being a faithful shepherd of the flock of God. Then he says in verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Um, Abusive leadership is deadly to a church um, and I've got a, a good example from the Old Testament from a passage which uh, Hal preached I guess some time ago now Ezekiel 34 verses 1 to 6 could I get someone to go there and read that uh, Ezekiel 34 1 to 6 
You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sawed what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Thank you. So there we see the elders of the people of Israel who were supposed to be leading the people in obedience to the word of God were instead living the good life while the people under them were suffering. Now, eventually, they did go into exile for it, and they were scattered among the nations. As I mentioned back at the beginning of this series, most of these early Christians in Asia Minor that Peter is writing to were Jews who had been scattered in previous centuries. When the elders of a church, just like the elders of Israel, abuse their authority and earn their living as pastors while not ministering as pastors, the people are going to be scattered from that church. Uh, now, I don't, I don't know any statistics, but you know, we hear every now and then in the news about a, a church falling apart due to pastoral abuse. Of course, some of you probably listen to the uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, uh, which is a, a particularly egregious example because of just how huge that organization was and how popular it was. Uh, but whether it's something like that or even a small church that has some kind of uh, pastoral scandal or abuse, I do suspect that in many of those cases, the apostasy rate among former members is, is probably very high. Um, pastors have a responsibility to lead the members of the church as godly examples to them. And it is a very, it's in some sense a, a dangerous calling because of just the level of responsibility that they have. Um, God will hold pastors accountable for the members. Um, he says uh, in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, this, this responsibility of pastors for their members, it, it can be a means of judgment against pastors who do not fulfill their office properly but for those who are faithful pastors who do uh, carry out their ministry according to God's word and faithfully and um, with with good pastoral care uh, they are a crown of glory Uh, those members that are shepherded by the pastor are a crown of glory to that pastor Uh, When Christ returns, he will reward the ministers of the gospel for the saints whom they had evangelized and cared for. Um, And the language used here is a crown of glory. And Paul says a similar thing a couple of times. If you go to um, Philippians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, he calls them his crown, and then also... In uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 to 20, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? 
Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So he says this of the Philippians and of the Thessalonians. Um, and these are both cities, which if you read the book of Acts, are, are cities that first heard the gospel from Paul and Silas. Um, and so they are able to call the believers in those cities their crown. And likewise, Pastor Thomas, as well as any other pastors that we've had previously and any other pastors that we will have in the future, can call us their crown of glory if they exercise their pastoral oversight in accordance with their biblical calling. It is a very high calling, and it is very rewarding for those who do it faithfully. Um, And so then Peter, in verse 5, he pivots to addressing the members of the church. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So up to this point in our passage, Peter's been addressing the elders. And the term elder originally was a term that referred to uh, old age. In, in a village or, or some society, the oldest men in that society would be called the elders and they would have authority and they would be ones who would uh, lead and give counsel. Um, now, in the New Testament, by the time this is being written, it had come to be a an actual title for an office of the church, not necessarily a reference to age anymore. You can have, of course, a church where... You have an elder who's in his 20s and have members in their, you know, 70s and 80s and even older. Um, so it doesn't necessarily refer to age. It's, it's the name of the office. And I do believe that when Peter says here, you who are younger, that also is referring not necessarily to people who are younger than the elders uh, physically, but to those who are under the oversight of the elders. Um, and so even... If you do happen to be older than your pastor, you are still being addressed with these words that Peter's written here. Um, Do any of you remember, maybe at some point in your life, maybe you heard it often, hearing people say, respect your elders. That's a a common saying, common precept. Um, It's often used in general society without any reference to the church. But I do assume that it's originally derived from this verse, from verse 5 here. Um, of course, when most people use it in, in common society, they uh, express it to mean that we should be kind to older people. But in context here, it is actually referring to the office of the elder in the church. And it's saying that we ought to be subject to their oversight and leadership. And we're to clothe ourselves with humility. And... I found a few commentators who suggested that this phrase, clothe clothe yourself with humility, is a reference to Jesus wrapping a towel around himself to wash the disciples' feet. And if you remember in that story, uh, Peter played an important part because he initially objected to being served by Jesus in such a way. Um, And so Peter's uh, using this phrase here. I think what he's saying is, that we need to be willing to abase ourselves in service to one another. Uh, we should never feel too dignified to engage in acts of service to others in the church. You know, we should never 
we should never object thinking, oh, that's, that's beneath me to do that kind of thing. Every one of us should be willing to serve each other in every kind of way that is needed. Um, and none of us should ever have like a haughty attitude toward others in the church. Um, if you look at the history often of many churches, the poor would often be you know, forced to sit in the back or in the balcony while the, the rich had the best seats. Uh, that is absolutely not something we should always view each other as equal and we should always be willing to humble ourselves and to serve one another in every way regardless of any kind of status that someone might have outside of the church. Um, because we need to remember that every gift that we have is from God. We can't take credit for the things that we have. And I found a quote from Spurgeon that I really like. He says, Human ability without the grace of God is only puffed up inability. Those of you who, apart from supernatural help, feel quite sufficient for any kind of holy service are miserably deluded. Self-sufficiency is inefficiency. If we exalt ourselves, God is going to humble us. But if we humble ourselves, knowing that we are dependent upon God in all things, then he will exalt us. Verse 5 at the end of the verse, Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34, which uh, I quoted actually from the Old Testament last week. It, it's worded a little differently in the New Testament in the Greek, but it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, Proverbs 3.34. And then uh, Jesus also said uh, one of his more famous sayings in Luke 14.11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, if, if somebody in the church is looking down upon uh, others being haughty, this is not something that characterizes a true Christian, and they need to be called to repentance for that. Um, and we need to warn people against that kind of attitude. Next, he says uh, in verse 7 that we're to cast all of our anxieties on God because he cares for us. We talked about this earlier in this series. Everything on this earth that we might be concerned about pales in comparison to the glory that God has in store for us. And even if the thing that we are concerned about is our own salvation, if we would lean into the goodness of of God and trust in his grace he is going to give us assurance and he does this because he cares for us and so we don't need to be anxious about anything if if you do start to feel that anxiety let that be a thing that causes you to run to Christ in prayer so that you can have that assurance if you go and ask him for assurance he will give it to you um he is, as we said, the good shepherd. He cares for his sheep. He went out and found us when we were wandering. And he's provided us with a church and with elders and with one another to uh, provide that care in many tangible ways. And so we need to always uh, be a part of that and be trusting in his goodness and making use of those means of grace. So next he says in verse 8, um, or verses 8 and 9. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This command to be sober-minded this uh, comes up, has come up a few times already in this epistle. I think this is the third time that that phrase is used. Remember uh, the way we defined it, that it means uh, being not driven by cares and desires about worldly things. And so instead we need to be carrying the, the sword of the word of God with us at all times so that we can guard ourselves and defend ourselves and one another with it. Because if we let our guard down and we let cares and passions occupy our thoughts, it does make us vulnerable to temptation. And so we need to be occupying our minds with the word of God and not uh, present to Satan a weak spot that would allow him to exploit, uh, exploit us and attack us. Um, Satan is attempting to assault believers in every place all over the world, wherever he can. And so we need to be constantly on our guard and also in prayer for all believers throughout the world so that they too will all be able to resist him. And if we do see another believer who does seem to be occupied with the cares and passions of the world and the flesh, then we need to step in and remind them of this same exhortation. It says in verse 10, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And this suffering, as we saw before, this has been a major theme of this epistle. It's the lot of every believer in this life in some way or another, but it is only temporary. It is confined to this life, and it will end when either Christ returns or when he calls us into glory. Um, and notice that Peter speaks of our glorification here sort of in the past tense, uh, even though it is something that is still uh, to be realized in full in the future. For those of us who have been called by God, glorification is a certainty. And um, we talked about earlier that, that the Holy Spirit has sealed it. He has guaranteed it. But this certainty that we have and this assurance should not cause us to let our guard down. What it should do is give us assurance that as long as we are standing on the promises of God, we will not be overcome by evil. Um, I was actually listening to a podcast, started it last night and finished it driving here this morning about um, Robert Robinson, who wrote a hymn that you probably all know, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And in the, I think it's the third verse in the way we normally sing it, there's the phrase prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. When Robinson's own life, uh, he actually uh, started to get uh, swept away in some false teaching to the point that a lot of his fellow Baptist ministers were unsure of whether he was actually saved uh, once he died. Um, and so... You know, we, we cannot just lean on past experiences. We do need to always keep our guard up. So just because you had a, a conversion experience at some point in the past does not mean that you can let your guard down and coast through the rest of your life. Um, 
you know, we believe that once once you've been saved, that, that we don't believe you can lose your salvation once you've been truly saved. But uh, we do believe that false conversions can be very genuine feeling and that they can prove to be false by someone falling away at a later point. But having experienced conversion should give us assurance that as long as we stand on the word of God and on his promises that we will not be overcome by evil and that when we die Christ will restore confirm strengthen and establish us um, at that point you know once if we die before he returns our souls will go into glory and he and will be totally rid of every sinful corruption and we will be dwelling with Christ in the heavenly places There will be no temptation or evil that can threaten us. And when he returns, he will raise up our bodies and they likewise will be free from all corruption of sin and all imperfections. And at that point, um, we will have that eternal glory and we can be looking forward to that. And we should stand on that future as we resist temptation and resist evil in this life. It says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ will reign in eternity, and we will reign and live with him if we finish in the faith. So then Peter, finally, he gives in 12 to 14 his final greetings uh, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Uh, we know that uh, Silvanus was another name for Silas, who was a companion of Paul. And it's highly possible that this uh, same Sylvanus accompanied Peter for some time and uh, helped him with writing this letter. Uh, Peter calls him a faithful brother as I regard him, um, which I think that's a, a good translation. Some versions, I think the King James says a faithful brother, I suppose, which sounds like it could be suggesting that Peter had some doubt about uh, the faithfulness of Sylvanus, but I think what is actually saying is that he regards Sylvanus as faithful because he had experienced that, or, he, or Sylvanus had demonstrated that faithfulness in the sight of Peter, and so Peter is able to say, "I regard him as a faithful brother because of what I've seen in his life, um, and that he was therefore a trustworthy companion and a messenger to go out to the churches." Um, Peter says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. By that, I think he's referring to the whole contents of this epistle. Um, talking, He talks at length about the work of God and the grace of God and that this is uh, what he's writing to exhort us to stand firm in. So... Like, like all parts of Scripture, this is uh, an epistle we should all keep going back to and being exhorted by and encouraged by and studying. Um, and that's it's been my purpose in teaching in this series uh, that y'all would be helped in doing that. Uh, he, he says here then in verse 13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you, chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark my son. Uh, some people take Babylon to mean Rome under the supposition that Peter had gone to Rome. Uh, and as I mentioned in the very first 
um, lesson in the introduction to this epistle, there's no evidence that Peter ever actually was in Rome, or certainly even if he visited there, there's no evidence that he actually was a leader in that particular church. Um, now, Rome and Babylon do have some comparisons that can be drawn between each other. Babylon had, of course, conquered Israel several centuries earlier, and then Rome was occupying Israel at the time when this was being written. But I think, and uh, a lot of the commentators that I found tend to think, that it's more likely that Peter was referring to actual Babylon, or at least the place that was historically called Babylon, because, of course, there were many Jews living there who had not relocated back to uh, Judea after the exile. And so it's possible that there were also many believers among those Jews as well as Gentile converts there in that country. And that Peter had either gone to minister to them in person or that he had had recent correspondence with them and that they had uh, asked to send their greetings to these churches in Asia, Asia Minor as well. Uh, but whatever the case may be as far as who this uh, church in Babylon or this she who is in Babylon is, I do believe it is a church, not uh, an individual. Uh, it does show that churches should have um, that kind of care for one another, like I mentioned a couple of times earlier. Um, and then he mentions Mark also. I, I think that is John Mark, the same one who wrote the gospel according to Mark. Uh, and he, that he was another companion of Peter at uh, certain points. And so Peter closes with, greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Um, now, you know, sometimes we chuckle about this or about greet one another with the holy kiss. Uh, you know, we, we don't typically kiss each other when we meet here. But I think even though the physical act might vary by, you know, time and place, depending on, on the culture that you're in, we are commanded to show love and affection to one another in our particular ways. And so it's important when we're gathered together to have that time of fellowship and to really show that uh, love and fellowship that we have with one another as believers, as the family of God. And so when we're just talking say between now and when we go into the worship service or especially when we're having our meal together in a little while uh, we do need to show that love for one another and we also need to keep in mind all the exhortations that we've had throughout our time in this epistle and, and everywhere else in scripture and to have those uh, as as part of our conversations with each other um, encouraging one another with all of those things so with that, we'll come to the end of this series on First Peter. Um, as I said, I'll, I'll be gone the next two weeks, and I don't know what's, who's going to be teaching then, but after that, uh, Seth will be starting another series. Um, does anyone have any, anything they want to ask or say about our passage today or about the series as a whole? Can you demonstrate what on you? Thank you for all your help. Thank you.
Portugal. Well, they kiss on the cheeks all the time. It's weird. Okay. Oh, I, need to, I need to go there. I've been saying I'm going to go there. And I need, there's, there's things come up. Oh, you can ask Pastor Thomas when he comes back. We can ask him. Okay. Okay. Speaking of pastors from other countries, I saw uh, Pastor Isaac is going to be preaching in two weeks, and I'm going to be out of town. I'm kind of upset. My coworker's getting married. Anyway, um, not she's not getting married on Sunday, on Saturday, but I'm staying here tonight, yeah. Um, anyway, anything else? I love the idea of the churches, like, caring, like caring for one another mm-hmm. between the churches, even between the reformed churches, because, like, our family has gone to <laughs> three different reformed churches, and it's kind of neat to see the mm-hmm. connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do, does uh, Pastor Thomas still do the thing every like once a month where he meets with other pastors? Yeah, I thought so. That's that's a, a great thing, and I hope that that continues on. Um, you know, I always love like the the founders conference, and especially something like the RBNet General Assembly, where we have pastors from other churches coming in and, and preaching as well. Um, cool. Well, uh, I think we're getting it's it's about. Uh, 10.15, so let's go ahead and uh, close. Prashant, would you close some prayer, please? Dear God, as an entire we are thankful for the study that we completed. Thank you for John, who has led us in the study in the series um, that reflects uh, this epistle. Thank you for all that you have led, all the exhortations, the rebukes, the encouragements, and we pray that you would all to remember these truths, even as we walk daily, we pray that you would help us to go back to them and reflect upon them. As we go into our service now, we pray, Lord, that you prepare our hearts uh, for worship, that you would uh, meet with us this morning, and that all elements of our worship will be pleasing and glorifying to you. For we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.